Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the definitive developers podcast in fantabulous Chelsea, Manhattan. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. I have my co-host today, Dave Anderson, our producer, William Jeffries, and our regular guest, Emmanuel Gennard. And today we'll be talking about test coverage, going from bad to good and knowing when to do it. I'm sure test coverage in various organization is often used to ensure that the code that we're working on is awesome and works well as expected. But some, you know, some places may not know when to introduce test coverage. Yeah. And it, it can be confusing too, because like just that percentage itself, if you have a hundred percent coverage, does that mean that you have good coverage? Like, have you covered all the branches? Have you covered all the statements? What, what are all these metrics mean? You know, it's confusing, Bobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can just jump right in into the topic, knowing when to do it. Let's talk about legacy code bases. Has anyone ever worked on a legacy code base that needed some coverage in it? Where would you All define as, as legacy code base? Like two, three, four, five years old? To me, if it's not you that wrote it, then it's legacy to you. I've also, heard, <laughs> also yeah. if you wrote it like six months ago, then it's probably legacy code too. <laughs> good, good. All right, all right. So I've also heard some people say that to them, legacy code has to be untested. If it has tests, it's not legacy. That's interesting. So I, to me, I think legacy code is is the code you're trying to replace by writing something else. But it still exists because it has to. Like once your next project happens, then you want to roll that one out. But you still need to maintain this legacy system. So if I wasn't trying to replace it, it's not legacy? Because it's it's the there's nothing in front of it that's the future. Ah, it I is it is ever present. <laughs> yeah. Until some young code comes out. Yeah. <laughs> take <laughs> some its spot. Young, yeah, young blood comes <laughs> through and, and calls okay. it legacy, it just throws it off. The one I like best is the one where it belonged to someone else because this is their legacy that they left for you. Ah, yeah, that's good. Because it could be good legacy or it could be bad legacy. Yeah, semantics. Right, like (laughs) where you no longer have the context. Like it's it's kind of no longer supported by the original vendor or people who wrote it. Have you guys ever worked with legacy code that that needed tests or that, that needed coverage? Before? Yes, I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine like, oftentimes like it could be painful and sometimes it can't, but you got to introduce it. When have you found good times to introduce coverage to to a legacy code base? If I had to make change to that file, I got to introduce tests, man, because I don't want to break anything. I'm hoping to understand what the file is, what this piece of code does and how it behaves. And I don't really understand it. I can read it as much as I can want to. I don't really understand it till I can have tests that describe its behavior. Yeah. And if there's no test file, if there's no spec file for it, then yeah. like the hardest part can often be just writing that that first file, like making the new file and like, you know, getting used to doing that. Because I, I think a lot of people feel intimidated about creating a new spec file for something that doesn't exist or they don't fully understand. So if you get one test in there, then... The next time that you have to come back and write some code, you can write some better tests. Right. So as Emmanuel mentioned, if the event you're making changes to the code base, then you want to introduce coverage to ensure that whatever you're adding is in, is exactly what you expect it to be. Yeah. Although I've definitely, I've definitely worked in applications where there's just zero coverage and the political capital is not there right. to write the tests. Yeah. And 
if you don't have the test, then you need to make up for that with process. You need to do the QA and move very slowly right? and be nervous. What do you mean by political capital? Is it the product person or is it the other devs that you're trying to say that you would be trying to persuade or make the case for tests? I think it would be like more on the business side where, so you know, people the are happy. They're happy with what they have and they don't see why they would need to invest like the non-political capital of like paying people to refactor. Uh, at least if it's the product or like business folks, which it usually is, who are reluctant and have a hard time seeing the value. Although I suppose there are, theoretically it would be anybody who is opposed to writing tests. So you would have to spend political capital to convince to allow you to write tests. Right, yeah. Right. I mean, interesting this. What if you just didn't tell them? Say, oh, I'm going to add this new functionality and you just wrote some tests for it. To me, tests are an implementation detail. And yeah. if you're a responsible engineer, then you should be writing tests as you implement features and you don't need permission from anybody to do that. Yeah. Right. I agree. I think that, you know, tests as well as QA and any other regression tests also should be put in the velocity. But I think going back to spending the political capital, as Dave mentioned, it may be possible that the tests may not bring any additional value to the code that already exists, right? And then it's if you spend time writing test coverage for something that potentially have been tested by not having tests and just by being in production the entire time, it's possible to kind of get away with that. I wouldn't suggest it, but you know, if time is of the essence, then there's some drawbacks that have to happen and there should be discussion on when to write those tests for that. Right. Yeah. Mm, I see what you mean. Yeah. And I guess a a challenge too is that like, if you're the lone gunman developer who's going to write the tests for it, you know, business and other devs be damned. Like if someone breaks that test, then who's going to be the one who has to maintain it? So you do have to, you have to get buy-in from everybody. Right. I mean, I mean, couldn't you just get buying from the other devs mainly because they're the ones who like if they think it's important maybe like for instance i don't know like qa like if there's no test there's probably no like ci process that checks runs tests right 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 and so like if ci keeps building maybe you just don't run your tests on ci you run them on your local machine you get other devs to say hey i'm gonna add some tests to this what do you think about it you think this will help you? Uh, and basically, if if you're the only person feeling the pain of no test, it's probably going to be hard. But yeah. there's a good chance you're not, I feel like, right? Right, yeah. I mean, there are benefits to coverage, right? Whether yeah. it's legacy or it's not. I have a couple of examples in mind, but does anyone want to introduce what are some of the benefits to test coverage? Yeah, I mean, an obvious one is that you have an assurance that the thing is working as you expect it right? without actually having to click on it every single time that you open it up. Oh, yeah. I guess like mm-hmm. starting from zero, if you have like one feature test that tests the good thing that you want to happen, like although we've talked like a lot about unit tests in past episodes and mm-hmm. how valuable they are and often more valuable sometimes than feature tests or end to end tests. Like if you're coming from zero, then having a feature test could be a good way to start. Right. Yeah. I think that code coverage is only valuable if you actually use it. Yeah, which is why continuous integration is so valuable or continuous delivery, things that will stop you from shipping code that uh, breaks your tests. But I would also add, assuming you're doing that, assuming you're actually using the code coverage, another thing that's really valuable about it is that you are less likely to end up with those late night failures where yes. something gets paged. 
Oh yeah, PagerDuty is not a thing I like to subscribe to. <laughs> I don't know anyone who likes to subscribe to PageDuty. Unless you get paid extra, I guess. But unsubscribe. Yeah, no. <laughs> subscribe to the podcast. Unsubscribe <laughs> to PagerDuty. What if you get a free pager? That'd be hot. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what year is this? <laughs> hot? I guess you go to the bar and it's like, oh, hey, right. check out that guy's pager. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 911. Yeah, those were the worst. Imagine <laughs> that was not cool at all. But I do enjoy sleep. And I think that the code coverage definitely helps you sleep by having the confidence that the code you have out there is awesome. Yeah. And I guess if you have been woken up in the middle of the night by something, then that's a good candidate for a place to start putting that coverage if it's missing. Like yes. Make a new test and make sure that you're assured that that case is not going to happen. Also not having to fix the same bug twice. That's one thing that really bothers me is when I have to go and fix that same bug. <laughs> this is back. Again? Kidding, guys. Oh, yeah. This oh, horrible. man. The code coverage will stop it from coming back. No more zombie bugs. Yeah. Those are the worst. Can't stand those. Yeah, just like whether it's sleep or it's just like confidence in your code base and having to get rid of zombie bugs that keep coming back, I think is a definite reason why I personally love having code coverage. Trying to hit to that number 100% mark is like the goal. It's often improbable, right? Like if if someone tells you the code base we have is at 100%, it's like really like you really got it at 100%. You have to kind of question it because it's like so rare. The code base I'm working on is at 100%. Is Bobby. that 100%? But <laughs> yes. really? Yes. That makes me a little bit nervous, actually. Yeah. That makes me wonder <laughs> if they are more concerned about hitting the 100% number than they are about making sure that the most important execution paths are covered. Because it could be mm-hmm. that that line is being exercised in one test, but actually it needs to handle three different data types. Right. And all yeah. three of them are equally important, and you're yeah. only testing one. And they're all nullable. And you've instead yeah. spent <laughs> that time that you could have spent making sure that the key paths were correct, catching all of these really minor code paths that no one really cares about. Right. Yeah, I think... That's really like a valid point. The quality of your test is not something you can tell from code coverage. Right. And I've I've been sort of questioning that myself in terms of, do my tests really expose the problem I'm trying to solve, including the regular cases with the and the edge cases? And code coverage doesn't tell you that. And right. it, it's mm-hmm. really, I mean, it's it's when using all these metrics, code coverage being one of them, what is like, you know, how do you know when to stop? Right? I mean, the question I have, like, how do you know, okay, this is, I have covered enough or I have not covered enough. I think if you're TDDing, then as soon as the feature is done and you're finished refactoring, mm-hmm. you've written all the tests that were necessary to create the feature. Right. Mm. And they, and I think William brought up the point of like the, like when the bug gets introduced, mm-hmm. I mean, sure, you may have missed a particular test that, that exposes that bug. Mm-hmm. But like you never really know until like it surfaces, which may happen, mm-hmm. right? Like, and then you write the test. Then? And you, you write the test for that, and then you whatever new thing that comes up, you make sure that you write tests that covers everything. Test coverage is awesome. Keep you should definitely do it. But there, okay. So suppose we have coverage. You're you're on a code base now. You're at a client. You're at a you're at a job, and there's like fifty percent code coverage. Let's just say that fifty percent flat. You need to introduce new tests. New feature, you need to introduce 
test to the new features that you're building, but you also need to go back and add some coverage to any other file that you touch, right? Let's just try to be realistic and not like, okay, your job, William, is to go into the code base and write tests for all the things. Go. Like, that's highly unlikely. But like, if you're adding new features and you're touching this new thing that needs coverage, you might as well just start adding coverage. Be a good Boy Scout. Leave it better than you found it. There you go. There you go. Awesome. That that does happen though, right? Like, you, you may have one person who's like tasked on a project to write legacy tests legacy coverage for the tests that are missing right i mean i I find that to be like kind of like you know you're not writing new stuff so it's like sad right yeah i agree and i I feel like it does like kind of isolate the context and like if that if it's just one person or two people writing tests for all the things then you're not getting the benefits of the you know the good boy scout kind of aspect and you may you may be writing tests that you don't actually need just because you want to get to that artificial 100 percent branch or statement or path coverage or whatever you're going for. Right. I myself have run into two different ways of going into a code base and increasing it. One would be to, if you're on a file that needs coverage, you scrap everything and then you unit test the entire thing to make sure that everything works well. Just mm-hmm. TDing it from yeah, the beginning. TDing it from the beginning, right? Or you just write coverage that covers the current implementation and there are pros and cons to both those I think things again another I another route you could do is write the tests with the code in place mm-hmm. and then delete the code and rewrite it right mm-hmm. mm. i think we've spoken about this in our in the tdd episode but like one of the pros of ensuring that you delete all of it and then you actually write the code again is ensuring that the design of the code is more more thoughtful right it's often kind of frustrating to test with a legacy code that didn't have a test to begin with because you have to you know mock the imports or like yeah. do some some global nastiness on classes that you might want to not want to do right i just feel like when then and then one of the cons that i've seen of actually scrapping everything is potentially missing out on a business value or like a business requirement that wasn't really like visible in the code. Like I think if you delete everything and then you write everything, you may miss some something. I'm not sure exactly what or where, but like that's the one thing that like racks my brain. Right? Like you may there may be a business value that you delete because you wrote the test that you may have thought this is will cover everything but may mm-hmm. miss something in the long run. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. Does anyone have any like personal experience with that? Or yeah, you absolutely oh, need yeah. to test it in the browser and make sure <laughs> that the app still works. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess that's what version control is for. You know, oh, you yeah. can you can have some comfort in deleting code because it's not really deleted. Like it, it never really goes anywhere. It's still there. When in doubt, revert it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just well, yeah. That's kind of nice, actually. Like when you're doing a refactor and like you delete a bunch of stuff, and then you get to a point, it's like I just need to abort. Like I've flown too close to the sun. My hubris <laughs> is too great. I'll be less ambitious next time. <laughs> right. But we agree that scrapping everything and writing the unit test, or as William mentioned, write the unit test and then rewrite the entire implementation over is probably the better option of the two rather than just writing tests that exist in the code base. Assuming you're optimizing for high-quality design and comfort that your tests actually cover the implementation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. You often end up with better code to begin with because you have, you know, dependency injection over like global things and all that good stuff. Right. Yeah. So imagine on your team, if you're having coverage that you weren't adding before, one of the side effects of that, as we mentioned before, would probably be velocity, mm-hmm. right? Because you'll, you'll probably gain, you'll probably slow down on the velocity because your your team has now been made the uniform decision that you, we will all test new features and mm-hmm. take the time, be a good boy scout, be a good girl scout, fix those previous files and make sure that they have tests. But velocity will take a hit. And I think that's something that the entire like team should know. I'm, I was going to say organization, but like, yeah, like if your team is doing that, the organization needs to know, hey, we're doing this for the benefit of sleep and other good things that we mentioned before. To ensure that all, everything works. I mean, I think one of the things I would stress to any other stakeholder is remember that time when production went down at 2 a.m. Or remember that time when this bug that really messed up for our users happened and we had to like scramble like crazy to do this thing? We would like to have less of those times. Right. And so I think framing it at the point of like, hey, this is really for you and your job and for the people using the, our app together. It's going to be a, probably a negotiation, I'm sure. But I think like if it's really something that's better for the application you're working on and the people using it, I mean, I would stress that more than anything else because it's for them. Right? And, that, and that's the perfect time to do it is right after there's a huge production outage. Once you're done cleaning up after it, that's the time. Go to the stakeholders and say, hey, let's make sure that never happens again. Let's yes. get some automated tests. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. Either either experience pain, like two a.m. calls, or like money, like oh that bug, you know, made us lose X amount of dollars. Like people like oh you know if we just paid it up front by spending an hour or two extra on the co coverage, that would be very helpful. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that was a great great example, mm-hmm. Manuel. Yeah, you'll never yeah. completely eliminate the possibility of an outage, but you can reduce it dramatically. Yeah, it is good at like galvanizing people like to a cause, like. If, if everyone's feeling the pain, then, you know, it's easier to convince them to get on board and join the push for happier code and test coverage. And it gives you a dollar value. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's oh, very true. Does. Yeah. Like assigning a dollar value to like every minute that you're out, especially if you're like doing e-commerce or, you know, what what have you, like anything that, that has a stream of money, you can put a dollar value on every minute that the site is out. That's, that's really powerful. Yeah, especially when they're comparing it to features and saying, well, this feature is going to make us money and these refactors that you do don't make us any money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But you want to make sure that everything works well and, and yeah. it's, you you make money in the long run. It doesn't make us money, but it stops us from losing this much money that we just <laughs> lost. There you go. Yeah. Right. And also the incalculable like brand equity and like trust that you lose from, you know, your, your, side your being clients down. and yeah. yeah, like and turnover from frustrated developers. Mm. That is true. Yeah. So we just had a lengthy conversation on test coverage and why you should introduce it to your organization if you haven't already and why you should keep it up. As we mentioned before, it's very good for your health, for your sleep, for your confidence in your code base and for the work that you do. 
And don't worry about it 100%. <laughs> yeah, just get it. Make sure if it's 100%, make sure that the quality of the test is important, which we have a couple of episodes. I'm, I'm glad to say we have a couple of episodes that talk about testing and the quality of yes, those tests. part of the testing series at the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Do we have any teacher learns today? Yeah, I've, I've been learning a lot lately, like... We were talking earlier about like planning this episode. We were talking about objects of structuring and other blog posts you had, and I read that, and I learned that you can unpack deeply nested objects in JavaScript, which is like pretty awesome. Like yeah. I, I really like object destructuring as it is. It like makes it very clean syntax, like especially when you're unpacking props for React or what have you. But like doing deeply nested stuff, that's that's sweet. I like that. I ended up writing that blog post because I knew I would forget how to do that. JavaScript, but then I was asking one of our colleagues to look it over to check on my English. And the person was like, Hey, I actually didn't know you can do that. And you can fix a couple of English here. So I was like, Oh, you didn't know? Okay. Well, then I have to share it with everyone now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And the other thing, like object assign and the spread operator, like I got it now. But like when I first started using it, it was like, Oh, ES6, what's going on with my brain? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty crazy. But I need to, yeah, I think I need to write a blog post for a spread operator and a sign because I often forget those things too. So, oh, yeah, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing that I've been learning a lot more about is like, server-side rendering and what considerations are there what what do lifecycle events actually mean in react Mm. and you know i think the general consensus that i've seen is if you're going to be doing some data fetching then or just anything in general like component will mount and render the two things that fire on the server side right and it seems like component will mount is just not great yeah people don't really like it so She's component did mount instead and then be happier. Yeah, because I think component did mount happens after render, which means that everything is already in place and then you can load the props up like successfully. Is that Mm -hmm. like along the lines? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I was having a bunch of problems and then I did, I refactored and moved everything in component did mount and then it was easy. So there you go. Awesome. Yeah, I guess that's that about wraps up the episode. I'd like to thank my co-host, Dave, thank you. Thanks, man. Our producer, William, thank you. Absolutely. And our regular guest, Emmanuel, always good to have you. Always a pleasure. Feel free to hit us up at twitter.com slash radiofreerabbit. This is The Rabbit Hole. We'll see you next time. <laughs>